I have called up in all my Inch years of sorcery, no god or devil, ominous and gibbous. And the thing was a streaming ooze of charnel The wormy corpses that he dug with his hands from the unconsecrated graves. Dreaming it is verily known by few, there were people, but it's mostly priests and women, it is told, fact. whom he picked up as they fled, and pulled limb from limb as a child might quarter an insect. The Double, the double Shadow. shadow. Clark Ashton Clark Ashton Smith Podcast. Hello, and welcome to The Double Shadow, a podcast exploring the weird fiction of 20th century writer Clark Ashton Smith. I'm Tim. I'm Phil. And I'm Ruth. This episode, we'll be bidding a fond farewell to Averone, as well as talking a little bit more about Clark Ashton Smith, because I feel like we've learned a little bit more about him since we first started this podcast. So sad, Averone. How long have we been doing this podcast? Since June? I think so. I mean, we started talking about it so long ago, like March. I just want to say this is uh, not only the end of Averone, but it's the first time that I haven't been wallowing in my own sweat while recording <laughs> yeah, i know, I know. <laughs> it's fantastic right it's so pleasant in here right now just like i imagine it would be pleasant in everone during the fall strolling through the evil wood with your lover <laughs> <laughs> what have we learned about clark ashton smith since we started is there anything new well he had cats he did have cats General Tabasco. Uh-huh. And Simiesa, and I think. Simitea, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Phil and I, as we mentioned in a previous episode, went to the H.P. Lovecraft archive and read Smith's letters both to Lovecraft and to other people. And it was kind of fun to get a look into his life. And, of course, there are published copies of the selected letters as well. But these were unselected and unedited, which made them a little more fun because I feel like in selected letters, they tend to take out stuff like, yeah, my cats are doing pretty well. But it's kind of a fun personal touch, like Clark Ashton Smith liked his cats. <laughs> and the ladies. Clark Ashton Smith liked oh, the ladies. Yeah. <laughs> LL Cool Clark? I don't know. I'm done. <laughs> Kick me off the podcast. <laughs> Tim, what have, Tim, what have you learned? <laughs> You're fired. On the eBay, I bought a whole bunch of these journals called Lost Worlds, the Journal of Clark Ashton Smith Studies. It was put out by Seal Brent Publications. It seems like everything that was in these is on the Elder Dark anyway, so it's not information that's closed off to a wide amount of people. I just wanted to have these little journals. Mm-hmm. So I'm slowly going through them all, and I found a little article by Scott Connors called Who Discovered Clark Ashton Smith? And it's actually a pretty weird and funny little story because nobody really knows. Like, Smith never really said, oh, this is the person who discovered me and brought me out into the the open. Because it was kind of a traumatic thing, how he, how he gained notoriety at first. Because George Sterling, who mm-hmm. was his friend and kind of his poetic mentor, had mentioned one of his sonnets, The Last Night, in an article, I think, for Town Talk, without having known Smith. They didn't know each other by then. At the same time, Smith's mother would sell magazine subscriptions door-to-door to to help support the family. She met this, uh, there's this guy, Bootwell Dunlap, uh, (laughs) who is sometimes also considered the person who discovered uh, Clark Ashton Smith. And she knew his mother, so she would talk about, oh, you know, my boy... My boy Clark is a is an amazing poet too. So that kind of brought 
uh, Smith's work to Dunlap's attention. And then Dunlap started talking him up and then they met and he introduced Smith to Alexander M. Robinson, who's Sterling's publisher. Mm -hmm. Robinson said, you know, I would love to publish some of your stuff. There's no money up front, but we'll publish it and, you know, then you'll have copies. And so Smith wrote to Sterling and was like, is this a good deal? Should I do this? And Sterling said, yeah, you should do this. This is what I do. This is how I get copies to give away, like their promotional stuff. I don't make much money off of it either. So, so they do it. But then Sterling makes the mistake of, in another article, talking about how Smith is going to be published soon before the deal was completely done. And then Dunlap, who was jazzed to be the person who kind of discovered Clark Ashton Smith, went on the defense and also did a bunch of articles, did a bunch of interviews talking up Smith. Alexander <laughs> Robinson gets furious. So does Ambrose Bierce because people start <laughs> quoting Ambrose Bierce in these articles as having praised Clark Ashton One thing Smith. you don't want to do is piss off Ambrose no. Bierce. <laughs> no. So everybody's getting worried. Sterling's worried that he... You know, he let the cat out of the bag a little too soon and he doesn't want to ruin it for Smith. Smith is just kind of like, I don't know what to do. Well, yeah. Like, what did everybody do here? Yeah. He's like, "What? I don't know what's going on. I'm kind of staying out of it. Dunlap is furious because he wants the credit. Uh, he lived near Smith. He had like a summer home. Well, this guy Dunlap, he was an attorney. He was a California historian. He was a, a eugenicist. <laughs> he was a... Uh, <laughs> the consular representative of Argentina. So he was just kind of this man about town, gadfly, professional person. So he really wanted this. Once Bierce found out that he was being misquoted, Sterling basically said to Smith, be careful because Bierce hates this kind of stuff and he's going to, he's going to talk about it. Like he's going to clear the record. He doesn't want this stuff attributed to him. So yeah, in Bierce fashion, he wrote to Town Talk. He wrote like a big letter to the editor, basically saying, there's no, this is not, I didn't, I never said this. I never would say this. I would never compare <laughs> somebody to Keats and, you know, I, I just wouldn't do that. Uh, so I'm asking for a retraction. But he does mention like, he does think Clark Ashton Smith is good, but he, he would never, you know, say the things that were attributed to him. I think all in all, Smith made it out okay. Everybody liked him too much. Right. Well, he liked him enough to not want to kill his career. Yeah, well, um, I mean, it's good that Bierce liked him enough not to want his career, but the other people just all they liked him too much and went a little overboard. That's the strange story of who discovered Clark Ashton Smith yeah, dragging Ambrose Bierce into the, uh, into the fray. <laughs> Kicking and screaming. Into yeah. The <laughs> yeah. Kicking, screaming, and possibly shooting a gun. Next, I wanted to talk about an article titled Eblis and Bakelite, a criticism of Clark Ashton Smith by James Blish. I read it in uh, Lost Worlds, issue one, but it's also been reprinted in the book F The Freedom of the Fantastic, which Phil will talk about later. It was originally printed in uh, Tumbarillus by James Blish. So James Blish was, as his Wikipedia page states, born in 1921, died in 75. Uh, he was an American author of fantasy and science fiction. 
he also wrote literary criticism. He actually, I guess in the uh, 40s, he would publish his own, well, today we would call them websites. When I was growing up, we would have called them zines, uh, but mm-hmm. they called them in the 40s perzines, personal zines. So he would publish his own perzine called Tumberillis, uh, where he wrote criticism. So it was his own little like GeoCities page. And when I was when I was a kid, I actually encountered his. My parents had some of his books, his eleven oh, really? volumes adapting um, episodes of the original Star Trek. And he died midway really? from writing through Star Trek twelve. But my parents had some of those. They had like a random collection. I think they were my mother's of old Star Trek books. And so that's actually how I encountered him. That's um, fascinating. And I really had no idea who he was. In fact, I thought he was probably just some paid hack, which right. it's possible that he was just being basically just some paid hack who yeah. was writing this stuff up. I don't remember them as being especially brilliant or anything. Mm-hmm. I, I don't remember them as not being brilliant. I just, my teenage brain went meh and moved on. Right. Star Trek. Meh. I'll watch well, the I TV show. Well, I liked Star Trek. And well, I the TV it. show. Right. Yeah. But you're not going to sit down and read a novel about these jokers. Um, um, no, no comment. Actually, <laughs> um, yeah, no, no, Moving no on. comment. <laughs> uh, but he did write, I, I haven't read a lot of his stuff, but he did write a pretty good, and I don't know if you finished it, I know you you started it, Ruth, but a pretty good oh, yes, um, I finished it. sequel to The King in Yellow, kind of a sequel to The King in Yellow, called More Light, which... I thought was pretty effective. Yeah, I, I'm i not sure what I make of his attempt to actually write The King in Yellow as a play. It's interesting that he tried, and I think that he did. He made a decent effort to come up with what this would look like and how these would integrate with each other. I don't buy it, but I like I really like the frame story around the play um, of these people trying to read this play and actually experiencing it and i i found that part rather good to get to the criticism he starts the criticism by saying clark ashton smith has been called in quotes the greatest american poet by edwin markham i mean his his criticism it, it's it's funny because it's it's not it's not a very long essay it's like three pages no. or something and his criticism seems to be basically just that clark ashton smith is um an incredibly talented pastiche artist but but hasn't managed to prove uh, his own intrinsic worth, aside from just um, doing things like writing a, another end to Beckford's Vathic or uh, doing things in the style of other people, which again is an, it's an ironic criticism coming from what Blish would go on to do. And I mean, right. I, like, it's it's it strikes me as like it's an interesting essay on a historical level because it comes from 1945, so a lot of its like its frame of reference is strange. Like he, he it's it was funny to me that he references. Uh, Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot as, because like, you know, modernism, high modernism was an ongoing thing. And like, he doesn't really say whether he likes it or not, but it's, it's interesting. Any Anytime I see contemporaneous criticism that tries to put um, Lovecraft or um, or C.A.S. into the framework of like, what is more standard literary criticism, I always find it, it interesting. Just because like, all like currently today, all that stuff, like you would never be taught a Clark Ashton Smith poem in a in a college poetry class but you will right. definitely be taught wasteland and you'll know about the cantos mm-hmm. and you'll, like you'll know all these things but you would never like the style of poetry that the clark Smith was doing you know it's it is like keats or shelley or the romantics so when you talk about early 20th century poetry you don't talk about clark Ashton smith because it's like 
he was doing something that was archaic. Yeah, and I don't know as much, well, I, I'm not as into poetry, so I, I can't judge as much how much of his poetry is derivative, but for his stories, I would say that's, no, I don't think this fits the stories. I think it's a strange, it's a strange critique to read now because I think so much of like I think current critical thought on on writing in general and I think it is true is that any any writer is inevitably grappling with their forebears so to to criticize Clark Ashton Smith for like taking things from Poe or from Shelley or whoever seems to kind of be missing the point of what a writer does you know like like even right, if you look absolutely. at like mm-hmm. nobody really you know like you if you look at Lovecraft it's like okay there's the when they when you you can look at Rats in the Walls, and Rats in the Walls is generally said to be, like, his last Poe story, right? And then he became Lovecraft and, like, did things that were more intrinsically right. himself. But he had to, like, work through his his forebears to get to what was intrinsically – to figure out what he could add to what they had already done. And I think you can see that, like – I think Clark Ashton Smith's – the forebears he's working through are a little bit more, uh, like, maybe less widely read or not quite as well known. But I do – I don't doubt that he – that there is something intrinsically Clark Ashton Smithian in in pretty much all of his mature stories. So it just I don't know. It just seems like a strange like, especially from coming from like a early twentieth first century critical standpoint. It's a weird essay because it, his central critique seems to be, oh, Clark Ashton Smith read these people and he kind of writes like them, and therefore he's not good. <laughs> it, it sounds very modernist. Although, but but the modernist like all the, all they did was quote people too. Like the wasteland is is all. But they um, did it artistically. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> or 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 fascistically if you're Ezra Pound, I guess. These are some selections from the um essay that I thought were particularly funny and kind of cutting and maybe a little bit mean on Blish's on Blish's part, which is also why I like it, because he he is very he's very mean to Smith in this. But he's talking about the hashish eater. Uh, occasionally the results are more unfortunate and Smith gushes forth a hashish eater. And then in quotes, perilous nightmares of super terrestrial fairylands accursed, end quote, in Lovecraft's mashed potato language, but to the sober reader, <laughs> merely the sewage of plastic and chromium eblis. I love that he calls Lovecraft's language mashed potato. <laughs> but but is, it, I don't know if they noted in yours, but in the edition, edition I read, which is this in this book of Clark Ashton Smith criticism, that quote uh-huh. actually isn't Lovecraft, right. Loveman. It, it's Loveman, yep. Yeah, it's Loveman. <laughs> Interesting. Uh-huh. Which is funny, yeah. Which isn't to say that Lovecraft's language isn't mashed potato. <laughs> There's one other quote at the, uh, at the end, still about the hashish eater. Uh, it is incomprehensible and boring to the pulp readers whom, whom he has, perhaps perforce, addressed most often. It is moribund and intolerably arty to a literate reader. The best he can hope from it is that it will please the very tiny segment of the reading public, which is made up of men like Durleth and Lovecraft, who, incapable of distinguishing the artistic from the arty, can pass it through their digestive tracts and absorb it from the little and absorb from it the little nourishment that it contains. Ouch, James Blish. Boom! Bring the axe burn, down. Although I, I never miss a good burn on Durleth, but <laughs> I know. Yeah, it is an interesting historical perspective. And then Donald Sidney Fryer wrote a response to Blish's article, I think a number of years later. But basically, yeah, okay. he categorically goes through and, and uh, talks about how there's no way James Blish would have been able to read 
a majority of Clark Ashton Smith stuff. So he was only working off a few different things. And the main stories that Blish congratulates or concedes that Smith is a good writer is like the Kingdom of the Worm or something like that, which Sidney Fryer says those are definitely not his best stories. So no. he was just working on what he can get. The summary of the of Smith, of Sidney Fryer's essay is that James Blish was suffering from young Turk syndrome, which is basically <laughs> he was trying to build himself up by taking down somebody else. Yeah, I think that sounds like a fair assessment. Young writer encountering his terrain. Right, exactly. Figuring out mm. how he's going to interact with it. So now we move on to uh, wrapping up and saying goodbye to Averone, and we're going to start with looking at the three fragments that I linked to in the last episode. Queen of the Sabbat, the Sorceress of Averone, or the Tower of Isterel, and the Werewolf of Averone, um, which was originally called the Loop Garou. So the Werewolf of Averone, what we have is just a synopsis. Uh, it's just a paragraph long, so I'm going to read it. An anchorite, suspected of sorcery in the forest of Averone, who keeps a pack of savage dogs, of which he is inordinately fond. Several of these dogs are killed by the local peasantry and nobility, and in revenge the anchorite turns himself into a werewolf and attacks the slayers of his dogs. The anchorite werewolf, cornered one night by a well-organized hunting party, is driven back toward his hut, and is there slain by his own dogs, who recognize him only as a wolf. An anchorite would be a hermit type. The, the the thought, though, that he could turn himself into a a wolf, a werewolf, just turns he turns himself into a werewolf. That's awesome. Yeah, awesomely Everonian, and I really wish he'd written that one because I would like to see how he does it. I mean, unless it's the magical pond of Solaire, how does one go about turning oneself into a werewolf? Unfortunately, he didn't write that, and that it would be one of the few cases where we would have again. We got the one werewolf in this, uh, the Enchantress of Solaire. But we didn't get uh, a proper werewolf story. The next one is called the Queen of the Sabbat. And he actually uh, uses the term Shabbat, which is not the word he was looking for in the summary that he wrote or the synopsis. Jacques Didonne, charcoal burner and poacher, hunting a stag by night in the forest of Averone, stumbles inadvertently upon a Sabbat held by local sorcerers and witches. The throne figure of a great ram presides over the gathering, and on the right of the ram, naked, is seated the young girl, Nicole Morin, of whom Jacques is enamored. On the left is the girl's mother, long suspected of being a witch. The Sabbat has reached the climax with the celebration of the Black Mass, and certain of the celebrants are abandoning themselves to debaucheries in which such meetings always terminated. The ram-like figure of the master begins to paw the girl Nicole, and Jacques, mad with fury and horror, leaps forward into the whirling mob. He is overpowered and knocked unconscious. He awakes in pitch darkness in a dank, noisome oubliette, his clothing in rags, his flesh sore and bleeding from the claws of the coven. Anon, the trap door of the oubliette is opened, and the face of Guillaume, which was originally written as Raoul, but crossed out and changed to Guillaume, Comte de la Frenée, peers sneeringly down by torchlight. Guillaume, who reveals himself as the master of the Sabbat, taunts Jacques with his plight and then closes the trap, leaving the young poacher to die. After many hours, as it seems, Jacques lapses into slumber and awakes to find the girl Nicole beside him. She has brought food and drink and a rope by which they climb from the dungeon. 
through dismal vaults, they emerge into the night from the chateau. Nicole, in spite of Jacques's pleadings, leaves him in the forest. Later, armed with his crossbow and clad in the skin of a stag, he spies on another meeting of the coven, shoots a bolt through the heart of the master. Then, his antlered head lowered, he charges into the confused and fleeing coven. He overtakes Nicole, who has fled like the others. She accompanies him later when he quits the province. That would have been fun. I know, that would have been a good story. And I like that he, he originally wrote Raoul, Comte de la Frenée. And then when you think about Ra how Raoul was in the, in the episode we did last week, the satyr, that guy would not have been Lord of the Sabbath. So he had to make it a different count. Unless uh, his encounter with the satyr like, uh, changed him into some kind right. of like, believer in the occult and he became the master of this coven, which this would have been a kind point. of a fun trajectory. Yeah, that would have been a good, uh, a good character development between stories. And I like that when he comes back, he's clad in the, in the skin of a stag. Yeah. And uh -huh. antlered. The Raoul who was in Rendezvous in Averon. Raoul in Rendezvous was a servant. But he was the, his patron um, was... Raoul was the guy's servant versus the, um, he was the bumbling servant type, right. not mm -hmm. the, the troubadour who, who was patron. But yes, he served the guy whose patron was Le Comte de la Frenée, unnamed first name. Right, huh. And then in the, uh, in Maker of Gargoyles, there's also Raoul Coupin, who incidentally is, is at a pub or a, a tavern that is serving the vintage La Frenée. Right. So you have a bit of... You have a lot of Raouls in his stories. I know. I'm trying to figure out how we could make it the same Raoul. Like, maybe he starts out... Maybe he's, like, the fourth son of the Comte de la Frenée. So he's forced humility to become maybe a servant. Maybe he disguised himself. Right, to go on adventures. And then he kills these vampires. And then he goes off and becomes the Count. And then encounters the sat satyr. And then he's so heartbroken... Because his wife was cheating on him and then he had to kill her. That he traveled the land a broken man until he came to Vion and met a woman there. Who <laughs> finally made him feel like he was alive again. <laughs> and then creepy Blaise Renard <laughs> sent his pet gargoyles after them. Ending the, the unhappy life of Raoul. Uh, okay, so there's a little bit of Blaise Renard revisionism going on <laughs> at, the, at the end of that story. <laughs> <laughs> I just, yeah. want, I just want everyone to be aware that... <laughs> That's my unified field theory of Raoul. So the last fragment is the Sorceress of Averon, and it's actually, uh, it's a synopsis, but it has, what is it, um, nine chapters worth of uh, summaries. So I'm just going to outline it basically here. Um, in the first chapter, we discover that there's a Sorceress of Averon, possibly daughter of Satan. She lives in this tower... And she can see in her magic mirror that there are these men from coming from various directions and on various missions toward her tower. In the second chapter, we learn that there are, there's the Marshal of Vion and a very young priest who come to arrest her as a witch. They encounter a rather confusing and terrifying knight, which basically scatters their men, but the two, the, the Marshal and the priest, continue. When the, uh, when the night is over, the fog is gone, and the boggy ground has become regular again, and they find themselves at her tower, and she welcomes them in and starts uh, seducing both of them. In the first chapter, we saw her giving orders to her familiars, one of which looks just like her. In the fourth chapter, rather than trying to arrest her at all, they both start trying to court her, and she's amused by this, and she watches them fight 
because they actually start fighting over her. In the fifth chapter, we learn who the guy coming from the other direction was. He was a former lover of hers, rejected, came to her for, for help and advice. We don't know exactly why, but anyway, he's totally all over her. He has no idea that there are these other two guys. In the sixth chapter, the priest and the marshal are told that they have to become Satanists if they want to love her, and she celebrates a black mass and brings up Satan and everything. In the seventh chapter, she tells each of them that uh, she'll come to them the next night, but don't tell the other one. And she does visit them both. We don't know what she does from the synopsis. They fall asleep and wake up the next morning in the middle of the open forest with no trace of the tower. And they run into a peasant who says, um, you're 20 miles away from the tower. They confess their experiences and decide that they've been wholly bewitched. In chapter eight, the Father Drum's religious superior, Cardinal Augustine, comes to the tower looking for uh, both the priest and the marshal. And she says, I have no idea. They've never been here. I've never seen them. And all the peasants around say, really, seriously, we've, we've actually never seen them. After the guy leaves, her lover, who's actually been an accepted lover, asks, okay, what was up with that? So she uses her magic mirror to show him their adventures. She tells him that all of this took place in the Tower of the Shadow, which is actually a duplicate of her tower 20 miles away and is inhabited by her double spirit as well as all these other spirits. And he's really not sure he likes this because he says, well, you're real, aren't you? And she says, oh, isn't the best part that we really can't ever know? That's That would have been and, awesome. And that's my dialogue. I know. I really wish <laughs> that one. And it's so fleshed out that, yeah, I really wish he, he finished. And... So those are what we missed because Clark Ashton Smith is lazy. We... Something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he was lazy. I'm I'm intrigued about how often we didn't really get any in everyone, but I think we'll start to run into them pretty quickly. Uh, he seems to love uh, doubles and twins and things, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Yeah, like that that story would have mm-hmm. had doppelgangers in it. And if you recall, the unwritten sequel to um, Holiness of Zedarak featured Zedarak's double mm-hmm. and like an alternate version of Averone who he like had to battle. Which is, I don't know, it's like a cool little running motif that I think we'll start to run into a little bit more as we get into the other um, other settings and stuff. That's all I have to say about that. So I have an essay in this book uh, called The Freedom of Fantastic Things, Selected Criticism on Clark Ashton Smith. And the essay is called Into the Woods, The Human Geography of Averone by Stefan with a crazy Polish mm. last name, like <laughs> or something. Uh, and it's a cool little essay. Um, it's the only essay in this book that's specifically about Averone. Um, and he just kind of runs through the stories and talks about how um, it, it the Averone setting is unique amongst Clark Ashton Smith's writing because it is um, it is like so grounded in a historical milieu and it, it is very much about human emotions and um, like about lust and and ag- and uh, wrath and all those kinds of like weird sinful things um, and it, like it's a pretty well written re- essay I, I didn't find it particularly revelatory <laughs> although he does point one thing out which I think is fascinating that the first kind of like the inciting event of the Averon stories seems to be the building of the cathedral um which is actually like aside from the druidic times like the very first thing chronologically speaking is maker of gargoyles and the first thing that happens that of course is the cathedral is built um in vion uh i don't know like if we can make a lot about that but i just thought it was an interesting kind of um there's an interesting reading of these stories that that links all of this stuff to like the stamp of christianity being put onto these ancient woods uh which is kind of interesting 
Um, and he also talks about how the uh, the woods become like reflection of the subconscious of these characters. Like it's a place that they are going to to like to have sex or to like get magical potions, and it becomes a sort of weird alternate place to work out some of the uncomfortable subconscious human stuff. So it's a pretty good essay. I don't. It's not actually on Eldritch Dark. I don't know where you can get it other than in this book, which is called The Freedom of Fantastic Things. Wow, that's a really that's cool it. breakdown. Oh, I was looking at what our earliest story context would be in Averone, and I thought maybe the story within a story and the end of the story. And when I looked at that, the guy was going to be married in the cathedral in Vion. So that actually took place just after Maker of Gargoyles, um, I would say. So it really does. And we have that. We have Maker. I believe uh, Vion, I believe, is mentioned in um, also in, in Rendezvous. So you have all of those early, chronologically early stories that don't take place in Vion but mention it. And even in those days, it was the cathedral city. So I think that guy has a, a really good point. Uh, okay, so I thought it would be fun uh, to make a list of, of a number of things that occurred in Averon across the stories as a little uh, memorial of, of the stories that we've read. Um, so I compiled this uh, list. In Averon, we had one cathedral, one convent, two monasteries, 14 necromancers, one demon, one alien, one evil statue, 11 mentions of werewolves, one actual werewolf. Two sorceresses unaligned. One witch, Batrachian. Two vampires, lazy. One staff of household vampire servants. Two lamias, unconfirmed. One art-loving archbishop. Seven gargoyles. One corpse giant. Two epidemics of murder. And sixteen dead monks. <laughs> <laughs> Poor monks. Uh, that, now, I just want to point out, if you will go into the stories to confirm sixteen dead monks... I have guessed that there were 10 monks crushed in the cathedral, not cathedral, in the um, chapel when the oh, giant yeah. throws the boulder through the wall. Right. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say how many. It just says a, a, a number of them went in there to pray, and then a number of them died when he threw the boulder through it. So I, uh, I guessed 10. It's six confirmed dead, and then 10 probably dead. dead. Probably <laughs> dead, yeah. So it could be even more. It could be even more. Same with the necromancers. That number comes from the four that we have names for, and then the ten. The ten pupils of Nathair. The ten and the ten pupils who are listed as being in the backpack. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if he had other ones. Who knows? (laughs) But fourteen necromancers. That's a lot of necromancers. Even if you know ten and then two more, so twelve were in one story. That's still a lot of necromancers. Averone, we got necromancers. Maybe, maybe like the, there's no name for the guy in um, what the guy in the Mandrakes, what he is. Like I, I assume mm-hmm. he's just kind of like an alchemist, but right. he's not explicitly labeled as a necromancer. So, so uh, final thoughts, Averone. Final thoughts. We're leaving it. We're leaving it behind as a setting. We're we're walking that road out of the woods of Averone, across the ocean into the past. I uh, I don't know if I have any other final thoughts than the ones that have been in all of the podcasts we've done so far. (laughs) Uh, Except that I I, I think, and I'm sure I've said this a number of times, like I think it's, um, if Clark Ashton Smith hadn't had so many distinctive settings and ones that were slightly more distinctive than Averone, I think Averone would be emblematic. Like if if he had only written Averone stories, I think people would talk about Averone more, but because 
Hyperborea and Zothique, and even some of his modern day stuff is so strange and powerful. Everone kind of feels like the bastard stepchild, which is too bad because it's not like, I can't think of what it, I'm sure there are things, but I, I honestly like, it's weird. It's weird to encounter something from the like weird tales, this era of pulp that didn't, that doesn't have a direct descendant today. And I don't, I can't think of, I don't know of a direct descendant of Averon, which is. Yeah. Weird. I mean, it might just be French folklore, but well, yeah, the things there's that are being yeah. written today. Like what is, you know, who, oh, who yeah. read Averon and was like, I'm going to make my own Averon because it's really cool that he did this. Like, I, I don't, I don't think anybody has done that. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I agree. I don't see it. Even if people write sometimes similar type things, I don't really see anything that you could say, oh yeah, that was definitely inspired by, and I haven't seen anybody say I was inspired by Averon to write this thing. Yeah, which I I, I think that is kind of a pity because it is a good, it's a good self-contained setting, and it works for the 1920s or 1930s, and it works for the era of say the last, well, the end of the story, so the last date in Averon, the end of the 1700s, and I think it kind of works for today still. The clash of the very ancient and the modern, well, it's not modern religious, there's still something in that, and I like seeing it when I do run across it. In some cases, um, I am thinking some of Laird Barron's work uh, has, it's definitely not Averon in- influenced, or I don't know, maybe he can, maybe if he listens, he can tell us. <laughs> Listen to us, Laird Barron, we love you. <laughs> <laughs> we do. We love you so much. Um, but y- you have some of his stuff like his, The Croning, where you have this really ancient practice that runs into a modern day family in a modern day setting and you're just like wait what it, it's a really good clash of old yeah. And new. yeah so i do i love seeing that in stories wait i can i did think of something that might fit dungeons and dragons is totally <laughs> averon that's true but notably clark ashton smith is absent from appendix n He's yes i know He's he is a reference, which yeah is interesting. which is why castle amber happened yeah. right somebody said yep. screw that yeah i think what's going to be weird is uh, having done everone first i think we've kind of like misrepresented the majority of his writing because absolutely because yeah it gets so crazy yeah <laughs> it's true and everyone is so comparatively calm to how nuts like when things get nuts it gets nuts yeah um, and everyone like when things get nuts and everyone it's still like oh well okay there's a giant corpse murdering thing but we're still like in medieval france and there's still like a cathedral and it's still oh those are monks i understand what those are but once we get into zathique and even some like all the other stuff it's just like yeah he, he had a strong aversion to realism i, I think like, oh absolutely a violent aversion. uh-huh <laughs> just thinking about something like say the charnel god it just kind of off the wall compared to it even in the the next few stories that that we're doing, the the second one, the voyage to whatever Venus, basically. Oh yeah, yeah. It's gonna be it's gonna be really fun when we have to say words. That I know, are like... alien. I know. It's yeah. like sorry, my French will only carry us through Averon. Everything else is gonna be what? <laughs> Clark Ashton Smith, master of fantasy names. That story is completely off the wall science fiction strangeness. It's it'll be interesting as we delve more into his other stuff. So if you have bought into Averone, it's still the same guy and it's still the same strange. And if you haven't, it's more. It's yeah. still the same strange. It's just more awesome. Yes. <laughs> How's that for a 
incredibly non-precise piece of (laughs) 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 I love it. So what's the next, what is our next setting? Poseidonus, which is Atlantis. Poseidonus. Uh, And the first story that we're reading is The Last Incantation, right? Uh, Yes, it will be. The the first Averone story was the end of the story. The first <laughs> Poseidonus story is the last incantation. Who I have a last I have a last Averone question. Who was your favorite pair of Averonian lovers? Whether requited or not, <laughs> who 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 will you always remember? <laughs> Sephora and Anselm for me. They seemed like they, the most willing. They did get the awesome um action scene. Yeah. And then the maniacal laughter right after it, which was awesome. <laughs> Not maniacal, just oh, yeah, just laughter. Some, yeah. Just laughter. <laughs> yeah. Oh, remember when you stabbed my ex-boyfriend in the face? Oh. <laughs> Good times. Oh, this mirror, I'll just throw it out. <laughs> what about yours, Phil? I'm still thinking. It's really hard. It's a really hard question. I think the man. I think the Mandrake husband and wife. Um, <laughs> I mean, not well, not as like an like. Like a relationship to emulate, right? (laughs) Yeah, uh, as a intimate portrait of a bizarre murderous dysfunction, and the description of the night that he kills her is still really like it's still stuck in my craw. It's really, um, it's really good. Although I have to say, and it's like not very, um, not very PC, but I might also have picked Blaise Renard and his unrequited love because it. is just awful. <laughs> and like, I think that's fair. I just really like that story. <laughs> I agree. Blaise Renard is awful. Finally, we agree. <laughs> no. <That's... laughs> right, Hi, Tim. <laughs> There's a part of me that says Brother Ambrose and Moriamis. Mm-hmm. Right. Because that's a good they one. have that, yeah. that oh, awesome what? Actually, time love. When this question's done, I have one, one double last thing I want to say. Okay. <laughs> And there's a part of me that just is so tickled by the couple in Rendezvous and Averone where she does not speak a single word. (laughs) (laughs) I think I will always care. Like, I'll carry that with me much longer than I'll carry Moriyamas, the awesome, powerful sorceress lady. My my double last thing that I want to say is that the one story that, like, I really have, like, all the Averone stories. The one story that continues, but the more I think about it, the more I like it, is actually Holiness of a Zedirak. And I don't know why... But I have such a fondness for that story. And every time I think about it, I think, damn it, that was awesome. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> wow. I know. And I, don't, I, can't, I can't really explain why. I just wanted to point out that, like, in the, in the sea of Averone stories, that one just keeps, like, getting higher on my estimation list. And I, I don't think I can objectively call it a very good story, but I just find <laughs> it profoundly charming. Fair enough. Yeah, I, I think I agree. I, I started out hating it, but after talking about it and thinking about it, it is it has a certain philosophy to it that And it has so many awesome details like yeah. like Azadarak just disappearing, like and right. being yeah. is awesome. Uh-huh. And his weird helper who is I think one of the enduring mysteries of Avron is like uh-huh. who, yeah. who is that helper and why? Jehan Mov Movesoi. Yeah, exactly. And like the, night. the master of disguise assassin. When, <laughs> when we get to Hyperborea, I am going to have. I'm going to probably be making the case multiple times at increasingly tenuous stretches of logic that Azedarak is somewhere in those Hyperborea stories. <laughs> <laughs> so just prepare, be prepared for me to like 
point to somebody in every story and say yeah. that's probably a Zadar. <laughs> I say we look for him. We should also look for uh, Nathair's ancestors because they were supposed to come from Hyperborea. Oh right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Hyperborea. Okay, so that's the end of Averone. Au revoir, Averone. Yeah. Au revoir, Averone. Au revoir. Farewell for a while, Priestess, but have no fear, you shall find me again if you are brave and patient. <laughs>